If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah to chapter 7. Our verse today that we're supposed to begin on is verse 11, but it begins with the word but. If it begins with the word but, we got to back up, right, to see what we're opposing. Although, let me tell you, just scratch out the word but, it's actually just and. But, yeah, it means but here. Verse 8, for a running start, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, These words come right out of the mouth of the Lord our God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, What kind of prophecy? In times and a prophecy of judgment. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Give me one modern word to describe all that. Repent. Repent. Verse 10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed. God calls on them to repent, and they say, ain't no way, God. You can't make us. We're going to do what we want to do. It's my body. I'll do what I want. They refused to heed, shrug their shoulders, and stop their ears so they could not hear. Refuse to heed. You know what the word heed means? Listen, they're not going to obey. They're not going to take the advice. They're not going to follow the Lord's instructions. Shrug their shoulders. How many of you had children? And when you told them to do something, they go, eh. Were you immediately filled with warmth? <laughs> no, neither is the Lord. And stop their ears. Everybody, stop your ears for a minute. Yeah, it means literally, I ain't going to listen. So does this mean that they accidentally forgot to hear? No, it means they made an absolute deliberate choice. And there's a word play here that you would never see in English. What is the word amen? So be it. Spell it for me. A-M-E-N, right? This word refused is M-A-E-N. The A and the M just trade places. What they should have said was amen, we'll do it. You said it, we'll obey it. Here we go. But M-A-E-N means I ain't going to do it and you can't make me. M-A-E-N. You can put a posture between the A and the E if you like. It's not part of the spelling, but it just helps us to remember to take a breath. So in Hebrew we'd say ma'ain. But it's a deliberate choice. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 37 verse 35. And see if we can understand a little bit more about refused. Genesis chapter 37, verse 35. Just reading those words makes me think of Revelation chapter 16, right? Where in the tribulation period, God's pouring out his wrath, the people are thumbing their nose at him. Saying, you can't make us repent. But Genesis chapter 37, verse 35. 
and all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. That's that same word. He refused to be comforted. Why do they want to comfort him? Because his sons had brought home the bloody clothes and say, oh, sorry about Joseph. He was torn to pieces and they ate him all. All we have are these bloody clothes. And his sons wanted to comfort him and say, it's okay, Papa. It's okay. You got the 11 of the rest of us. But he refused to be comforted. He would not accept the fact that he lost his beloved son, Joseph. It says, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning, which means I will never cease mourning for Joseph. Thus his father wept for him. What was special about Joseph? He was the eldest son, the firstborn son of his preferred wife, which was not Rebecca, but Rachel. Uh-huh. Rachel and Leah. Rachel means you as in E-W-E, a female sheep. And Leah means hard on the eyes. Okay. On to Genesis chapter 39. Chapter 39, verse 8. I want us to see that verse in chapter 37 because it shows he made a conscious choice. I will not be comforted. I refuse it. Genesis 39, verse 8. Joseph is a good-looking guy. And Potiphar's wife sets her eyes on him. And she says that the end of verse 7, lie with me. But verse 8 says, but he refused. Did he accidentally not sleep with her? No, he made a conscious choice that adultery is an offense to God. I will not do it. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Verse 23. Exodus chapter 4, verse 23. Moses is talking to Pharaoh. What's he tell Pharaoh? Let my people go, right? Exodus 4, 23. So I said to him, let my son go that he may serve me, but if you refuse to let him go, there's that word. Indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Did Pharaoh have a choice whether to let the children of Israel go or not? He did. When he makes a conscious choice to say, I will not hear the word of God. That's where this word, ma'ain, comes in. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14 So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. Do you know what that word hard means? It's strong, full of courage. Will not give in to fear. He refuses to let the people go. Again, a conscious choice. Exodus 16, 28.
Exodus 16, verse 28. Oh, boy. Where does God give the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai? Exodus 20. Exodus 16 is before Exodus 20. You guys are going, yeah, we knew that. But what's the discussion here? Is the Sabbath. Was the Sabbath not created as part of the Ten Commandments? The answer is no. It's been from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And it says in Exodus 16, verse 28, And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Did they do an oopsie? Or do they deliberately say, I don't care if God told me not to do this, I'm going to do it anyway. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Numbers chapter 20. The people made a conscious decision. We will not obey God. Unlike today where people just accidentally don't do it. Right? Yeah, okay. Numbers 20, verse 21. Israel has come out of Egypt. They simply want to pass through Edom. They promise not to eat from the fields, not to drink from the wells, just to travel through. Numbers chapter 20, verse 21. Then Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. Would it have hurt Edom in the slightest to allow Israel to pass through the territory? No. Edom and Israel, if you remember, are brothers. Esau and Jacob. Who is in Gaza right now fighting against Israel? The descendants of Edom of Esau. They made a conscious decision. We will not treat our brother kindly. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 7. We're up to verse 12. Verse 11 said, And they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint. What is flint? It's a very hard rock. In the book of Matthew, Messiah says, the gospel message is like the best of seed, and the human heart is the ground on which the seed falls. And what happened when the seed fell on the hearts of stone? Nothing. Nothing. How many have planted a garden at some point in your life? Did you pick the stoniest, hardest places? No. Tried not to. Tried not to. That's right. You want the nice, soft, tilled ground. But this says they made their hearts like flint, meaning they will not allow the words of God to enter the heart, to penetrate it. Making the heart like flint is the opposite of another phrase. You know what that is? Circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart is to make the heart willing to hear, to listen and obey the words of God. Making it like flint is so that they would just bounce off 
and not take root. It says again, refusing to hear the law. The word law there is Torah. The word Torah doesn't actually mean law. It means instruction of God. The instruction in righteousness. They figure if they don't hear what God wants them to do, then they can't do it. And after all, God wouldn't hold them responsible for not following it, right? Yeah, that's right. He, he is a, shall we say, a righteous judge when it comes to those who will not hear the law. In fact, let's keep a finger here because we're coming right back to it. I didn't finish the verse. But go to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9. Proverbs 28, verse 9. Most preachers occasionally take passages from the Psalms and the Proverbs and use them in their messages, but there's some of these they would never touch with a 20-foot pole, and this is one. Proverbs 28, 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the Torah, the law, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God, even his prayer is an abomination. If you will not hear God's words, he will not hear your prayer requests. Sometimes people jump in and go, well, he would hear the prayer for salvation, but that means you have turned your ear toward the law. You're no longer turning away. You have done what's called what? Repentance. Repentance. Is there a New Testament equivalent to Proverbs 28 9? John 9 31. Let's go look at John 9 31. John 9 31. John 9, 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Why is it people don't associate John 9, 31 with Proverbs 28, 9? They don't want to? I was thinking they've lost what it means when you see the word sin. What is sin? The transgression of the Torah. Give me a verse. 1 John 3, verse 4. 1 John 3, verse 4. Let's turn up to 1 John 3, verse 4 for a minute. Often we will look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Often we'll look at 1 John 3, verse 10. But there's also verse 7. But let's start in verse 1 for context. So we know why that's the discussion. Behold. What does behold mean? Listen. It's a continuation of verse 29 which ends with. If you know that he is righteous. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. The opposite of righteousness is. Lawlessness, and that's why chapter 3 is here to explain that to us. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. John says, Do you know what an honor that is 
to be called a child of God. It says, and therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and has been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, that is face to face. And everyone who has this hope, what is this hope? To be the child of God that gets to see God face to face, to live in his presence, to dwell at his feet. Everyone who has this hope and impurifies himself just as he, God, is pure. How does one purify oneself? That's sanctification. That's cleaning out the sin. That's repenting. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Anomia, that which is contrary to God's commandments. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. What does that say? Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Meaning if you can continue walking in sin, and it's not just convicting the daylights out of you, what's wrong with your heart? Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The opposite of that is Matthew 7, 23. Those who are walking in lawlessness are going to hear what? Depart from me, I never knew you. You don't want that. So also look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? The wages of sin is death. How did he redeem us from the curse of the law? He died for us. He died in our place. Having become a curse for us, for us written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Yet I hear regularly from people that say, this says he redeemed us from the law. Is that what it says? No. Redeemed us from the curse of the law. They say, well, isn't the law a curse? No. What does 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 say? And the law is not what? Burdensome. It was not meant to be a burden. It was meant to be a blessing and a joy. So let's go back to Zechariah 7, because I haven't finished reading the sentence yet. Boy, I have no self-control. Yes, Miss Rachel. Will, it, will another cross-reference to Proverbs 28.9 be John 9.31? Yep, but we already read John 9.31. But you're exactly right. It is the New Testament equivalent of it. So back to verse 12, Zechariah 7.12. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the Torah and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit. What Spirit? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Uh-oh, that's what I want you to see there. 
What comes as a result of refusing to hear God's commandments? Great wrath. Is that what you want? The wrath of God poured out upon you? No. What is that verse that Daniel liked so much in Psalm 119? Let's turn back to Psalm 119. What's that? 134. It's 126. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. What's it mean they regard your law as void? They refuse to hear it. They say it's not important. It's not for us. Messiah fulfilled it. They have all kinds of ways to say it. What they mean is I ain't doing it. And when it says it's time for you to act, O Lord, that means it's time for God's wrath to come. That word wrath, let's go back to Zechariah 7.12, is the word ketsef, Q-E-T-S-E-F. Or write any other combination of English letters that makes you say ketsif. Okay? Not ketchup. That's close though. Ketsif. For other instances where this word occurs, let's go to Isaiah chapter 34. Immediately your mind is going, oh, but that's about judgment. Yipper. That's what God's wrath is, is judgment. It's Hebrew word 7110 for those who like to look up the meaning of the words for yourselves. But remember, don't look it up in Strong's. Look it up in a lexicon that's keyed to Strong's. Strong's Concordance tells you the way the word was used in the King James Bible. So King James is always correct. <laughs> because they're just telling you which word in the King James this word is. The lexicon tells you what the word means and where it comes from. Okay, Isaiah chapter 34, verse, we'll start with one. But the key verse is two. It says, come near you nations to hear. Who are the nations? That's the Gentiles. That's the nations of the world. And heed you people. Now that's talking to Israel. So who does God want to hear this message? Everybody. Let the earth hear and all that is in it. As if we didn't understand that first clause. God wants to make sure we don't miss it. The world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord. That word indignation is ketsif. That's wrath. Does wrath mean he's a little unhappy? Or does it mean somebody's going to get a woodshed experience? For the indignation of the Lord is against whom? All nations. How many times do you hear pastors say, God's wrath is only for Israel? That's not what this says, is it? His fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. When you read a text that takes place in the future, but it's written with words that sound like the past, that's a special way in Hebrew to write what's called the prophetic perfect. It's a way of saying God already wrote it in the book. If God already wrote it, is it going to change? 
No. Do you have to wonder whether it's going to take place? No. So the prophetic perfect means this is not an if. This is assured that this judgment, this fury is going to be poured upon all nations. And we call that time, of course, the tribulation period. Sometimes I get amused when I hear pastors say the tribulation period is only so God can punish Jews. And it's not a humorous laughter. It's a you just watch and see. Mm. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 54 verse 8. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 8. I want you to compare what we just read in Isaiah 34 to what's in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 verse 8 is written about Israel. Verse 8 says, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. With everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. You know what's happened to Israel through God's judgments. God says that was a little wrath. What's coming upon the nations of the world, he describes as a great wrath. Mm, aren't you glad we're not going to be here? Isaiah chapter 60, verse 10. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls. Talking about the walls of Jerusalem. And their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you. But in my favor I have had mercy on you. When God establishes the messianic kingdom, the nations of the world are going to come and help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Are going to bring wealth and treasures into it. And are going to stream up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of... Tabernacles, that's why. Zechariah 14, verse 16. Let's look also at Jeremiah chapter 10. Well, it's kind of like deja vu, huh? Jeremiah 10. What did we study last night? Jeremiah 10. Verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. That's not right. If you're not here last night. It is. But the Lord is the God of truth. True God. The word true is an adjective. The word truth is a noun. A God of truth. What does the scripture say is truth? The Torah is truth. The word is truth. The spirit is truth. Messiah is truth. He is the God of truth. Isn't it odd that people think that all those four things are truth, but they think they can disagree with each other? They can't disagree. But anyway, verse 10 says, But the Lord is the God of truth. He's the living God. He's uh, comparing himself to the idols, the sticks, the stones, the little pieces of metal. What are they? Sticks and stones and pieces of metal. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Okay. I don't think those are related. And at his wrath, the earth will tremble. Not just a few people. 
the entire earth is going to tremble. And the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. So here we see wrath and indignation are parallel terms. They essentially mean the same thing. But he uses the word indignation when referring to the tribulation period during which his wrath is poured out. The earth will tremble. If you look at the actual words in many of these prophecies, like the heavens will roll like a scroll, do you understand the meanings of those words? If I take a scroll and I hold it up, and I'm rolling it from one place to another, what's happening to the words? They are moving. So, if you're standing here on earth looking up at the sky when this takes place, the earth is going to be rotating on its axis, it's going to be changing its axis. And the stars that were above you today won't be the stars above you tomorrow. What is that going to do to the earth? That's when every mountain and every hill is moved out of its place. Can you imagine the kind of earthquakes that that's going to create? At the same time. And it's why the earth will go back from 365 and a quarter day years to 360 day years because the axis will change. Is that when the mountains are brought down and the valleys are lifted up? Yep. That's when. Oh, sorry. Whenever we start talking prophecy, I get goosebumps. Back to Jeremiah. No, Zechariah. We'll do Jeremiah next week on Friday. Zechariah, chapter 7. We're up to verse 13. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because of what's just happened. What's just happened is they made their hearts like flint. They refused to hear the words of the Lord. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. That is the very embodiment of Proverbs 28.9 and what it means. They refuse to hear God's commandments, but they want God's blessing. They want him to defend them from the Babylonians. They want him to feed them because they're under siege and food and water can't come in from the outside. They want his blessing, but will they repent and give him glory? The answer is no. If we could go back and look at the children's drawing boards at home where the children are doing their lessons how much you want to bet they'd have the word God and an ATM machine that's the way they're treating God don't tell me what to do you have no business in my life but give me, give me, give me and God says no if they want to put their faith in the pagan idols he says let the pagan idols defend them you know how well that went over I heard that old expression, lead balloon. Don't know quite it, what it means, but I think it's applicable here. So verse 14 says, But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. What is a whirlwind? Anybody know? It's a tornado. 
a whirlwind, a tornado. When a tornado comes through an ancient village, what happens to all those buildings made of sticks and straw roofs? Completely gone. You cannot today stand out there in the middle of the field and say, come on, tornado, bring it on. I got this. That doesn't work very well. Have you seen the movie Twister? Doesn't work very well. So that's what he means by like a whirlwind. When God brings his judgment, that's the way he describes it. Go to Isaiah 66. He uses the same term when looking at the judgments that fall in the tribulation period and the judgment of Messiah at the end of it when Messiah returns for Armageddon. Isaiah 66, 14. When you see this, we're talking about the return of Messiah. Your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. That's his blessing, his protection, his kindness, his mercy. In his indignation, there's the za'am to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire. What is fire picture? Judgment. And with his chariots like a whirlwind. He's saying, who can stand when the Lord brings his judgment? No one. And it comes quick. What does Messiah say? Kind of like the lightning flashing from the east to the west. To render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh. Remember in Revelation 19, 11, talks about the two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. That's the sword we're talking about here. Talking about the word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. That's idolatry. What happens to all the idolaters? They're going to die. Eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouse. What about those that are eating ham and pork and shrimp and lobsters and oysters, etc.? says, they shall be consumed together, says the Lord. He's going to kill them one and all. I must tell you, many, many decades ago when I was wrestling with, are we really not supposed to eat these things? I read Isaiah 66, 17 and said, we're not supposed to eat these things. I still have people going, but didn't God cleanse them in Acts chapter 10? If God cleansed them in Acts chapter 10, is he going to slay you for eating them when he returns? The answer is no. So what's the answer to Acts chapter 10? Did God say don't call any pig common or unclean? Or did he say don't call any man common or unclean? Yeah, who gets to decide what's clean or unclean? It's God and not man. But also on the whirlwind, while we're in Isaiah, if I hadn't just shut my book, let's go to Isaiah 58. I don't know. Isaiah 58, verse 9. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. 
So if you are praying to God and he will not hear you, what is the cure? Repentance. Let's look at Proverbs 10.25. Proverbs Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more. That's the judgment we're talking about. When Messiah brings the judgment in Isaiah 66. It says, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. The whirlwind still passes by, but what happens to those that are righteous? What is their foundation? They're founded on the rock. The rock is Messiah. Will Messiah protect us from the whirlwind? If we are his children, if we are the righteous ones. But the wicked, they built their house on the sand. Let's go back to verse 14 of Jeremiah 11. Oh no, Zechariah. Zechariah 7. Jeremiah 11 was last night. Zechariah 7, 14. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Where did God promise to do that? Deuteronomy 28, verse 36. God said, if you turn away, you turn to the pagan idols, I will cast you and a king you sit over you to a land you don't know. To people who speak a language you don't understand. How would you like to suffer that? To be taken captives by people whom you don't understand. They're screaming instructions at you and you don't have a clue what they're saying. And are they going to be happy that you're not being obedient? No. How do you say, but I don't know what you told me to do? No speaking English. Yeah, no speaking English. It goes on to say in verse 14, Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned. Meaning when Israel's in captivity... Who can return them to the land before God says so? There's nobody. When they're cast out into the nations, they are in captivity until God says it's time to return. And why were they cast out into the nations? The last part of verse 14 says, For they made the pleasant land desolate. How did they make the pleasant land desolate? What's the pleasant land? That's Israel. What happened when they would not let it have its Sabbath years to regenerate the soil? What happens to the soil? The nutrients get less and less. The produce produces less and less. 
and the land becomes desolate. Go to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 24. You want to see a land stop producing? Give praise to Balan Ishtar when it produces fruit. And eventually, you're going to find the fruit is going to stop. Psalm 106. Starting in verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word. That verb, believe, write this down in your notes. He-aminu, H-E-apostrophe, E-M-I-N-U, he-aminu. Same verb, just a different conjugation from Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed God, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. When God spoke to Abraham, Abraham believed it and did what God said. God speaks to them, talking about the children of Israel, and they didn't believe it. God said it, so what? Won't happen. says, but they complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. They complained in their tents that they're not getting everything they're asking for. But they won't heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because they will not hear. He raised up his hand in an oath against them. Once God swears an oath on his name, will he ever break it? Not. That's Psalm 89, 34. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Got a question out here and go to meeting land. Let's see. I'll probably getting a lot of static from somewhere. Okay, here's the question. In a somewhat related discussion, I seem to remember the expression in parenthesis in Mark 7, 19, and that's only in an NIV or an NASB, one translated from the Westcott-Hort text. It says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean was not in the original Greek text. Do I, did I remember this correctly? The answer is yes. And if so, where can we find this in the original Greek text? The answer is in the Westcott Hort Greek text, which is an adulterated text made from primarily the Textus Vaticanus and the Textus Sinaiticus. The Sinaiticus was found in, in a monastery in a trash heap in the Sinai, and the other was found in the bowels of the Vatican. And if you ever see an actual reproduction of those texts, which you rarely get to do, it's the original Textus Receptus with words that are marked out with new words written above in places where sentences and paragraphs have been cut out to change the text. And both those, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, were done by Jesuit monks to undo the Protestant Reformation. Because what they wanted was to have two different versions of the Bible 
and you don't know which one you can believe, which one's real. So you have to have somebody tell you what's right. Therefore, they said you'll have to turn to the Pope. You'll have to come back to Catholicism so the Pope can tell you what to believe. It was to destroy the doctrine called Sola Scriptura. So in, in an NIV, you'll see a parenthetical that says, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. What it says in the New King James, let's turn up to it. It's from the Textus Receptus. There's over 5,000 copies of the Greek New Testament existence, all but two agree. And the two that don't are the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus because they were changed. So go to Mark 7. And let me tell you what that's about. Mark 7. Verse 19. Let's start in verse 18, which is where he starts calling the apostles dumb. He does. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? What's that mean? Are you dumb too? Yeah. Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. The first thing you've got to know is he would never call an unclean animal like pig food. In Leviticus 11, God tells you which animals are food and which ones are not. But second, Mark 7 is not about eating any kind of animal. It's about a ceremonial hand washing called neti dime, where you have a two-handled cup. You pour water over one hand, then water over the other. It's something commanded by the rabbis, not by God. And the Lord is saying, if I didn't pour the water over my hands, and if I have a little sand or dirt on my fingers, and I eat a piece of bread, and that's what the discretion is. Look at verse 2. Bread, the word bread there is made from water and flour. What happens to the bread? The bread gets digested. What happens to the dirt? It goes out in the latrine. So the digestive system will clean the dirt off the food. So Messiah says, quit worrying about it. How many of you have children who made mud pies? <laughs> did it kill them? No. I'm not going to ask how many of you did it because, well, you probably all did too. And that's what he's talking about. The scribes and Pharisees are worried about a little dirt on your fingers because they didn't wash their hands like you told them to. He said what defiles a person is the rebellion in the heart. The rebellion that says, God told me I can't eat this shrimp, but who's he to tell me I'm going to eat it anyway? What's he going to do? Well, you don't want to ask those questions. Let's go back to Psalm 106. Yes, ma'am that um, someone actually wouldn't be saved if they weren't kosher? Like if Kosher's else, the wrong word. Or, you know, do I, think people I don't know how to word that. Do I think people that are eating things like pig and shrimp and all yeah. are saved? Yeah. Well, what did we read in Isaiah 66? What's Messiah going to do to them when he returns? He's going to kill them. Is that so they can go to heaven quicker? Mm-hmm. No. What the scripture says, go to uh, 1 John chapter 2. It's a good question because it's a really important one. So go to 1 John chapter 2. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So it's something we need to repent of. We don't want to go to judgment day being in rebellion to God. And if we look back, three of the main commandments that God tells us are so important to him in the Old Testament are the Sabbath, the feasts and festivals, and don't eat unclean foods. What did the Catholic Church change in the fourth century? The Sabbath, the feasts and festivals, and the unclean foods. Why did they do that? Because God said this was most important to show our service to him. The Sabbath, it says in Exodus, is the sign that we worship the true and living God. The Pope didn't want you to worship the true and living God. He wants you to obey him instead. So even though the Protestant church came out of Catholicism, they still follow the Pope's commandments in those regards. In fact, if you go to the Baltimore Catechism, it says, what day is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is Saturday. Then why do we worship on Sunday? To show the power of the Pope that he has the authority to change God's laws on earth and bind men to it. How do we know he has this authority? Because even the Protestants obey him. So do I think it's a big deal? I do. Go ahead. Go ahead, I'm listening. Oh, you said the, the three, you know, important, yeah, the Sabbath, the feast, and the, the food. Yeah. Um, where do you get that as being the most important? I mean, have you? If you remember, when we went through Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. That's when we pointed out that these were the things that God kept hitting upon. Okay. As what separates those who obey him from those who don't. You don't find most people going around saying, well, I got to murder somebody every day. Yeah. I got to commit adultery every day. It's, I got to reject the Sabbath. I got to eat me some piggy. And I got to do things like Easter instead of Passover. Right? Okay. Yeah. What keeps coming up over and over and over again? Yeah. In Isaiah 56, it says, which of the Gentiles are going to come into the Messianic kingdom? Those who are keeping the Sabbath and the rest. And also in the, in the New Testament, the, the words of Paul that are twisted, most often, if you listen to various denominations and teachings, relate to those three things. Relate to those three things. It all ties back to the Catholic Church in the 4th century. And also, to, if I can say this, I think to the Catholic Church, basically destroying all Hebrew writings of the New Testament. They couldn't change the Old Testament. There are too many copies. But it's obvious there are books in the New Testament that had to have been written in Hebrew because yeah. of the Hebrewism. And by changing those, that kept people from validating the Old Testament. Yeah. If you remember in which one? The Deuteronomy Matthew. I have a copy of Deuteronomy Matthew. Many of you probably do. I think I may have sent them out even. It was rescued from a fire by Cardinal Deuteronomy where they're burning all the books in Hebrew, all, all the books of the New Testament even. And there was one he said, I'm going to keep this one. 
and took it out of the fire. Okay, back to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land. That's Israel. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised up his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness. To overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. So right here what God is trying to tell us is there's a reason that all these, these judgments fell upon the children of Israel. Because what was Israel supposed to teach the world? about the true and living God and how his commandments were wonderful to be kept and how they bring God's blessing. So when they're breaking them, what are they teaching the nations of the world? To do likewise. Yeah. Back to chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7. I know that's a hard thing. That's why we teach on it so hard here. Zechariah chapter 7. We just finished chapter 7. We get to start chapter 8. Woohoo. Verse 1 begins with again. But it's not again. There is no again. It's simply and. And again gives us an entirely different meaning from what it should. So this is the third message of those four that began back in chapter 7 verse 1. And here it is. Again the word of the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy are we going to find? We're going to find end times prophecy and prophecy of judgment. So if it was fulfilled in the days of the Babylonian captivity, it's going to happen again in the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, in the tribulation period, do the nations come against Jerusalem? Yeah, they do. That word saying, again, means that what follows is a quote right out of the mouth of the Lord. What did Messiah say in Matthew 4, 4? Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So verse 1 says, The word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Doesn't that sound kind of redundant? Is that kind of like God holding a switch and kind of bouncing it off his hand? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous. That word kana is the word for jealousy. And that's exactly what it means. I am jealous for Zion with great zeal. What is Zion? Zion is prophetic Jerusalem. In the midst of Israel where God's throne will sit. Where Messiah will rule and reign through the Messianic kingdom. And Israel has been scattered throughout the nations. And the nations, have they cared for the Jewish people, treated them well, made sure that... No. They have mistreated the children of Israel down through the ages. And when God brings Israel back, 
what's going to happen to the nations. That's what chapter 8's about. Vengeance is mine, saith whom? The Lord, I will repay. That's what's coming. Hmm. I am jealous or zealous for Zion. You can use either word. With great zeal or with great jealousy. With great fervor, I am zealous or jealous for her. What this verse is trying to tell us is that God sent Israel into captivity not to hurt them, but to bring them to want. Repentance. When he sends them out of the land, into the land of the pagan idols, what do the pagan idols do for them? Nothing. So they have to read the scriptures and remember, oh, when we were in the land of Israel, when we worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how he blessed us, he protected us, he fed us, he clothed us. We wanted for nothing. But we turned our backs on God to worship those worthless idols. And now Israel's had, what, almost 2,000 years to see that there is no God like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what this message is about. That God's jealousy over his people will lead them to repentance. Let's go to Genesis chapter 26, verse 14. To see other instances of this word kana, how it's used. Q-A-N-A, Kana. Means jealous. Genesis 26, verse 14. We'll start in verse 12 so it explains verse 14, which is the key verse. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Is that because he watered it well? No. It says, and the Lord blessed him. That's why it produced a hundredfold. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. <laughs> That's just a funny way to say a man he got rich. That prosperity teaching. Yeah. For he had possession of flocks. The word flocks never refers to birds. It's to sheep and goats. Special word. What is that word? Zone. Zone. You hear how much it sounds like Zion? Zion is God's flock of people. You have to add that vav, which stands for man. Well, you know, okay. For he had possession of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. That word envied is kana. The Philistines want what Isaac has. Sounds like today. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And what were the Philistines most jealous of? That Isaac had a God who blessed him. What did the God of the Philistines do for them? Nothing. Nothing. Go to Genesis chapter 30. 
Another use of Kenah. We talked about Rachel and Leah, right? They were sisters. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, but when he woke up on the morning after his wedding night, there was Leah. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister. There's that word, Canaan. She was jealous of her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Genesis chapter 37. This is the kind of jealousy that God has for Israel. Israel, he says, is the apple of his eye. The choice vineyard. That he wants to love, that he wants to tend, that he wants to care for. Can you imagine how much it hurts the Lord to see him turn to idolatry? Genesis chapter 37, verse 11. We're talking about Joseph. He had a dream, right? And what's that dream? That Israel would one day bow down to him? How did his brothers take that? Not very well. Verse 11 says, And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Why do his brothers envy him? Why are they jealous of him? Did God give them visions and dreams? No. So here is Joseph, most beloved of his father, showing that he's most beloved of God. And the others didn't like that a bit. But as a little aside, look up at verse 9. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? The reason I want you to notice verse 9 is that's the sign of Revelation chapter 12. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. This issue keeps coming up because there were a lot of videos put out in 2016 and early 2017 that said the Revelation 12 sign was going to appear in the heavens in September of 2017 And that was going to mark the middle of the tribulation period. That was six years ago. The second half of the tribulation period is only three and a half years. And we're not living in the kingdom. But in Revelation 12 verse 1. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman. What's a woman always mean in prophecy? A religious system. Clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Genesis 37 9 says that is Israel. There's just 11 stars in, in Genesis. I'm sorry? There's just 11 stars. Because Joseph is the 12th. The 11 were his brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Joseph is the 12th here. 
There are 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 2, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. That's not the birth of Messiah 2,000 years ago to the Virgin Mary. It's the birth of Messiah in the hearts of Israel that takes place in the middle of the tribulation period of the Battle of Gog and Magog, when all Israel gets saved, as it says in Romans 11.26. Okay, let's go back to our study, because that was just an aside. But it does keep coming up, so I want you to see it. Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. With great fervor, I am jealous for her. Let's also look at Numbers 5.14. Now that we remember why we're doing this. Numbers chapter 5, verse 14. Numbers chapter 5, verse 14. This is about the Sotah, the test for discovering unfaithful wives. Verse 14 says, If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, or he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself. Those words, jealous, there are of the same root, kanah. Kanah. Deuteronomy 32. The sota, if you're not familiar with it, was a test given by God to tell the husband that she has been a faithful wife and you're accusing her wrongly or, yeah, she's guilty. Deuteronomy 32, 16. This is also the word kanah. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. Yes, ma'am? Question, could the same test be used for the husband or nope. was it only for something for the female? Only for the female. Somehow I found God being just right there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't write the book. I'm just reading it. Okay. Deuteronomy 32.16 They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. Israel was betrothed to God at Mount Sinai. And here's the betrothed of God calling idols husband. Do you see why that would make God jealous? Yes. And lastly on this topic. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. This one does not contain the word kanah. But it helps us understand what it means. We'll start in verse 1 for context. 
Now the Lord has said to Avram, who's Avram? Abraham, before God changes his name. What does Avram mean? It means exalted father. Avraham, father of a multitude. That's why God changes his name, because he believes God when, he, when God tells me he'll have a multitude of descendants. Get out of your country. What country was Abraham born in? Or the Chaldees, but what are the Chaldees? That's Babylon. Babylon was known for its idolatry, and God brought Abraham out of that to worship him. And when Abraham's descendants turned back to the worship of the pagan gods, God put them back in Babylon. From your family, from your father's house. His father was what? The village idol maker. To a land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Here's what the Kana connotes. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Meaning Messiah is going to come from Israel. But God loves Israel so much that the one who curses them is going to provoke great jealousy in him. You're hurting my beloved. Even when Israel is disobedient, God has to judge them. He still loves them. It's still his betrothed. And he still takes vengeance against the nations who mistreat them. Go back to Zechariah chapter 8 to verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. I mean, it doesn't matter how far Israel's been cast out into the nations. God will bring them back and he personally will return. When did he depart from Zion? In the book of Ezekiel, right before Babylon destroyed the temple, he departs from it, and then the destruction comes. But God says, I'm coming back. I'll return to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. Uh Uh-oh. Psalm 119, verse 142. What is truth? Torah. Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. What does the Lord teach? Torah in the kingdom. Ezekiel 44. What do his priests teach in the kingdom? Torah. So it says, Thus says the Lord, I return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. The mountain of the Lord of hosts. The holy mountain. Let's look at some of these things. Huh. I will return. It's actually written in the Hebrew in the perfect tense. But all the translators said, ooh, this is the prophetic perfect. We recognize it here. God's coming back. The city of truth. Let's go look at Psalm 119, verse 142. 
I set it. Let me show it to you. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your Torah, your law, is truth. And then look at verse 160 in the same book, Psalm 119, same chapter. The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Between those two verses, 142 and 160, which commandments of God will change one day? Not a one. That's Psalm 89.34. Let's turn back to it. I mentioned it a little while ago. Nobody said prove it, which means y'all remember it well. But let's just put eyes on it again. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So think about that on one hand. Nor alter any single word that has gone out of his lips. And on the other hand, remember Matthew 4.4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. God bless you. With those two verses, what if God decided, eh, it's okay to eat pigs. I don't care about Shabbat. Who cares about the Passover? What would that make God? A liar. Does God lie? He can't lie. Give me a verse. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that... He should change his mind. Very good. Hey, Wayne. Yes, sir. Um, on the Baltimore commentaries that I just downloaded, they talk about the church had changed the uh, the Sabbath to uh, celebrate his resurrection. That's another example where he wouldn't have done that because the Feast of First Fruits had already been established and he wouldn't have changed it. But that's just another example that you're talking about. Over. Yep. Very good. I mentioned Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 and Ezekiel 44. Let's just quickly, briefly, as time's flying, take a look at Isaiah 2 first. This is where I get a lot of comments from pastors of traditional Protestant churches who say, Wayne, the reason you're so mis misguided is because you keep reading the Old Testament. If you would just read the New Testament you'd understand. Because if you ask a traditional pastor what does Isaiah 2 verses 2 to 4 mean you're likely to get an answer if you get an answer at all of you don't need to know about that. That's Old Testament. But it's prophecy. And what does the Bible say about the words of God's prophets? What percentage will come to pass? All of it. 100%. 
So verse 2 says, Now it shall come to pass in the Achrit Hayamim, the end of days. We would call it the Messianic Kingdom or the Millennial Kingdom. That the mountain of the Lord's house, what's a mountain in prophecy? A kingdom. It's the Messianic Kingdom. Shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills. That's the other nations in the world, large and small. Messiah is over them all. And all nations shall flow to it. The word nations there means what? The Gentile nations. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What's the house of the God of Jacob? That's the temple. Where does Messiah rule and reign from? The temple. So why are they coming to the temple? To see Messiah. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth what? The law, the Torah. Somebody said recently, maybe that means the new Torah, and God just forgot to put in the word new. Does God forget words? I don't think so. Yeah. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the word of the Lord. What does Psalm 119, verse 89 say? Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Not going to change. Go to Micah 4. Read the same thing from a different prophet. Micah 4. What's the main verse we know in Micah 5? The Messiah will come from Bethlehem. So Micah is all about Messiah. Mm -hmm. Micah chapter 4 verse 1. Now shall come to pass in the Acherit Hayamim, the end of days. That the mountain of the Lord's house should be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. <coughs> Nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the Torah, the law, shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's Ezekiel 44 that assures us the law has not changed. Ezekiel 44, starting in verse 23. The they refers to the priests that are serving in the temple with Messiah on the throne. So they are carrying out Messiah's teachings. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. Have all animals been declared clean? No, there be no reason to teach the difference. Verse 24, in controversy they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws, that's the Torah, and my statutes, the chukot. Those are the commandments we don't understand. How many understand why God would say, thou shalt not murder? Yeah, that's pretty easy. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Pretty easy. Thou shalt take a perfectly red cow and slaughter it on a mount of olives and burn it with hyssop, with cedar, shiny colored cloth. Take the ashes and put it in water. Sprinkle people with the water to make them clean. How many got up this morning and said, well, of course that's how you would make people know? 
Those are the statutes. We don't understand why. God just said do it. In all my appointed meetings, that's the Moedim of Leviticus 23, Passover, unleavened bread, etc. And they shall hallow my Sabbaths. So what does God specifically hit right here in 23 and 24? The clean and unclean, the Sabbath, the feasts and the festivals. Why doesn't he say they'll teach people not to murder? Well, that's pretty obvious. And when it says my laws and my statutes, that encompasses all the rest. They're just some that he points out because he knew that in the 4th century, somebody was going to change things. Or at least try. Where does God tell us in the prophecies that it's going to happen? Daniel 7.25. Let's look at Daniel 7.25. He tells us who and he tells us why. Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 is about the false messiah, antichrist, or beast of Revelation 13. Says he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to, meaning to try to change times, that's the appointed times of Leviticus 23, and the law, that's the Torah. But the false Messiah is not here yet, at least not ruling and reigning. But what do we read in 2 Thessalonians 2 about the mystery of lawlessness? It's already, up it's already here. It's been from the Garden of Eden forward. Satan trying to keep people from keeping God's commandments. Because again, close your eyes. Put yourself back in the Garden of Eden. God said, do not eat from the tree. And the serpent said, eat from the tree. And who did they listen to? They listened to the serpent, Satan. And that's why Satan is referred to as the God of this world. Because who did Adam and Eve choose as God? The Lord or Satan? So when God says, thou shalt not, and someone else, whether it's Satan, the Pope, or somebody else, says, thou shalt do it, and we obey the man instead of God, is that right? Never. So, all right, let's get on with it. Will you go to 2 Thessalonians? Well, I go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, of course I will. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. She said, show it to me. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That was back in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago. The mystery of lawlessness was a doctrine called antinomianism. That's a big long word. But whose doctrine was that? That was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Turn to Revelation 2 and see what God has to say about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He addresses the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2 verse 6. In verse 15. In verse 6 he says. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. 
which I also hate. The Nicolaitans doctrine was when Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, the law came to an end. You don't have to keep those commandments anymore. And then later in chapter 2, starting verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Wayne? Yes, sir. Was not the doctrine of the Nicolaitans the same as uh, sensualness and lewdness? Yes, meaning since God's commandments don't Mix, apply anymore. Mixing, like we could go have a church service and drink whiskey and eat pork. Yep. That would be the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. All right. All right. What does that say? Ah. Back to Zechariah to catch another piece of that sentence or verse. In verse 3, I'll return to Zion. That's the prophetic Jerusalem. Zion means where God dwells. And dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts. Why is it called the city of truth? We looked at Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. The Torah is being taught, which is the truth from that mountain. But he then calls it the mountain of the Lord of hosts. Why is it called that? Let's go to Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43, verses 1 to 7. Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 7. Messiah is the Lord of hosts, right? I keep saying he's going to rule and reign from the temple in the temple mount in Jerusalem. Here's where we find that out. Verse 1, afterward he brought... Whoops, you're not there yet. Let me give you a minute. Afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. That's the eastern gate of the temple mount. That's the gate in which the Muslim ruler, or the Ottoman ruler, Solomon the Magnificent, put the Muslim graveyard. Because he said, Ezekiel says Messiah is going to come through this gate, but Messiah won't walk through a graveyard because it's unclean, therefore I can stop the prophecy. How's that going to work for him? He should have read Zechariah 14. Not going to work well. But afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east, that faces the Mount of Olives. Where does Messiah return to? Mount of Olives. Comes across the Kidron Valley, called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. That's from the Mount of Olives. Why is he called the glory of the God of Israel? Just think of Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. He bears the glory of God. His voice was like the sound of many waters. That's the way Revelation describes his voice. And the earth shone with his glory. Can you imagine how bright? It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. 
What did Ezekiel see at the river Chabar? He saw God seated on his throne. He said, here comes Messiah into the city, and he looks just like the vision I had of God sitting on his throne. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple. Into where? The temple. Could this happen today? No, because there's no temple. But it won't be long. By the way of the gate which faces toward the east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's one of the neat things about the temple. Everybody look over there at the windows. They're designed to let the light in. The windows in the temple are beveled to let the light out. To let the glory of God is brightness shine across the mountain then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me and he said to me son of man this is the place of my throne my throne this is where he will rule and reign from the kingdom is in the temple of God in Jerusalem and the place of the soles of my feet which means ownership and possession think of the book of Ruth when they transferred a piece of land, how did they indicate it? They gave the shoe, the sandal that had walked the land. So the soles of my feet, it's mine, he says. Where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. So has this happened yet? No. There aren't many places where all Christian and Jewish theologians agree something has or hasn't happened, but this is one. Everybody can see it. And then it's called, if we go back to Zechariah chapter 8, it's called the mountain of holiness. It's not the holy mountain, it's the mountain of holiness. Let me just make that change in my Bible. The word holy, an adjective, is kadosh. The word holiness is kodesh. They're two distinct words. Kadosh is an adjective. Kodesh is a noun. And this means that everything that's going to go on in that mountain is going to reflect holiness to the Lord. So will there be any more idolatry? No, there will not. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 15 verse 11. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Exodus chapter 15 is the song of Moses. In verse 11, can you read that to me in Hebrew? That's the song we sing. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in what? holiness everything associated with the Lord must be in holiness <coughs> holiness or holy ones that's where you get the word saints in the New Testament keep a no, I don't keep a finger there just go up to Revelation 14 12 People are still singing the song of Moses. It's a great song. 
Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. The word saints in Greek is hagios, and it means the holy ones. The kodeshim. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. So if the whole mountain is a mountain of holiness, all those who come there, how would you describe them? They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Is there a difference in biblical Hebrew between and and or? The answer is yes. They're two different words. They have two different meanings. If God meant one or the other, he'd have used or. Where do I want you to go? Luke, chapter 1. Well, you know, that's in the New Testament. If you think the Old Testament and the New Testament teach different doctrines, then you need to rip out those pages between Malachi and Matthew because it's just one book. Luke, chapter 1. This is a prophetic vision that is given to the people. Let's go to verses 70 to 75. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives this prophecy. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 70 through 75. As he spoke, he being the Lord, the God of Israel, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, how? In holiness and righteousness. Before him all the days of our life. All the days of our life. Serve him how? In holiness and righteousness. Trying to decide in which order. Do I make you jump around or not? No. So go to Romans 1. It's easier to find it if we go one direction instead of bouncing around. Of course, sometimes i got to have a little fun. I mean, sometimes I get them out of order. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul. You know who Paul was. We all know who Paul was. A bondservant of Yeshua the Messiah. Do you know what a bondservant is? A bondservant. He was born a slave, but has been set free. But even though he's been set free, he chooses to continue to serve the master. But this time, not because he has to, but because he chooses to. Called to be an apostle. In Hebrew, that's a sheliach, a sent one. Who sent Paul? Yeshua himself did. Acts chapter 9. He didn't give Paul a choice, did he? He said, go. Which he promised. 
uh, sorry, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Remember, the book of Hebrews says that the children of Israel in the wilderness were preached the gospel just like we were. So the gospel is not just Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected. It's that we can be forgiven and be part of the kingdom of God. What did John the Baptist preach? And then Messiah, as soon as he came through his temptation, he repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you've got to be ready for it. Verse 3, concerning his son, Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, that is through his mother, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's the phrase I want you to see, the spirit of holiness. In the Bible, it tends to translate in, as the Holy Spirit. But here they're translating correctly, as it is in the Old Testament, the spirit of holiness. Meaning when God's spirit dwells in you, you must be holy as he is holy. Isn't that what 1 Peter 1 says, you be holy for he is holy? God's spirit is to bring us into a relationship of holiness. Romans 6.19 Romans 6 begins with What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Mage anointo. Certainly not. God forbid. No way, Jose. However you want to phrase it. What is sin? Lawlessness. Transgressing the law. Paul says, do we break God's commandments because we're saved? No way. But we're here for verse 19. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members, meaning your body parts, as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness that's before you got saved. So now, now that you've been saved by faith, Present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Lawlessness and holiness are incompatible. What does the scripture say? Without holiness, no one will see God. Hmm. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. 2 Corinthians 6 is a chapter that says, don't cling to those unclean animals. Let them go. But verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 1. I'm trying to tiptoe as you get there. Therefore. Well, you got to say, therefore what? Because, verse 17, Therefore come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord. Do not cling to what is unclean, and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore having these promises that we can be the children of God, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So right there in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, does God say, if you continue to eat pigs, I'll still be your father and you can still be my children? Doesn't say that. Hmm. 
Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Also written by Paul. We'll start in verse 17 and then we'll go down to verse 21. Let's just read the whole thing. We still have seven whole minutes. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. Does that make it true or false? It's true. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walked in the futility or perverseness of their mind. Does that mean when you get saved, your life doesn't need to change? You just keep going the way you were? No, it means it's got to change. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, past being, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned, Messiah, if, Indeed, you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Yeshua, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, that's from Ephesians 2, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Is it okay to continue to walk in lawlessness? No. Why does he emphasize in true righteousness? Can it be half-hearted? Mm -mm. God wants your whole heart. And holiness, and of course Hebrews 12, 14 is a verse I mentioned a minute ago. But let's put eyes on it. Again. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Pursue peace with all people, comma, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness describes the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Why do we keep the commandments of God? Is because of our faith. You can't earn salvation. But if you're saved, how will you walk? Let's go back to Zechariah. Chapter 8, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Let me let you get there. How many times does the Lord use the phrase the Lord of hosts in just these first few verses of chapter 8? Is that like him holding a stick and a carrot but no carrot? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of what? Great age. Does that mean 50 or 60 years old? No, it does not. 
Let's go back to Isaiah 65. You're right, it means several hundred. Like it was before the flood. How long did people live before the flood? Almost a thousand. Who was the only one that lived more than a thousand? There wasn't one. There wasn't one. The Lord said, in the day that you eat of it. What's a day to the Lord? A thousand years. So man's life could not exceed a thousand years until that sin got paid for. Now go to Isaiah 65, verses 20 to 22. This is referring to the Messianic kingdom. Messiah ruling and reigning from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Isaiah 65, verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who's not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. Do you understand what that means? Somebody who dies at 100 will still be considered a child. Goodness, I don't want to live to be 100 years old. I hurt bad enough as I am now. But in those days, the child will still be considered a child 100 years old. But the sinner being 100 years old shall be a curse, meaning that's the only way somebody's going to die in the millennial kingdom is if they rebel against God. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. Have you been to the Garden of Gethsemane? Some of those olive trees are 2,000 years old. As the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Who are God's elect? His children, his servants, those who love him. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 9. We're up to verse 5. I'm sorry, we're in chapter 8. Oh, oh, can't skip ahead to verse chapter 9 already. Verse 5. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. You have seen the great tragedies in Israel of the last few weeks, right? The children that have been slaughtered. This is talking about a time of perfect peace. When the children can just play in the streets. Let's go back to Isaiah 65. I know you're thinking, why didn't you tell us to stay there? I don't know, I forgot. Sorry. Isaiah 65, verse 23. Isaiah 65, verse 23. Which is the verse after where we stopped. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. Means no more stillborn children. No more children who are born sickly and perish soon thereafter. The children will be healthy, they will be strong, they will be vibrant. It says, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. 
the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Right now, but the wolf and the lamb, they do feed together, but the wolf's feeding on the lamb. But in those days, they won't be any hurt. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So not only is there no more warfare, as it says in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, but even the animals are not a danger. Don't you look forward to the day when you can have a mosquito as a pet? <laughs> Not today, right? That mosquito's in deep trouble. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. It also describes the beauty of the Messianic kingdom. And see how similar it is to Isaiah 65, 23 and following. Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. Verses 6 to 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For, meaning because, here's why. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Even the animals and nature itself will obey God. One last reference. I'm sorry, I'm a couple minutes over. Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Verses 3 to 5. Think of this verse any time and every time you see an abortion clinic. It says, for behold, which means shut up and listen. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Children are precious. They're a gift from the Lord. Well, our time's up. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Zechariah chapter 8 with verse 6.